At this time, children, you are uh, dismissed to go to your class if they haven't already gone, but you can go now. Again, turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, and I want to thank you for being here. And as we look into the Word of God, let's open with a word of prayer. God, we are thankful that we can look in this passage. Um, I've just been so thrilled to be able to study this book and just the, the truths that just go through and through it. Lord, as we look at this today, to be reminded of the fact that we have been forgiven. We just sang of a song that talks about our forgiveness. We, we were enemies of yours, God. And yet you forgave us. We know we don't deserve that. Yet at times, Lord, we sometimes think we do. Lord, I pray that you help us to remember through this passage that it is not our doing, it is of you. Lord, I pray you'll help us be humble enough to change what needs to be changed in our life. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Colossians chapter 1, as, as Pastor Will said, we'll be focusing in on verses 13 and 14. On March 26, 1964, a small two-seater observation plane was flying over, uh, uh, over South Korea and was shot down. The American pilot uh, died on impact. The passenger was a man by the name of Jim Thompson. Jim Thompson, maybe some of you have heard that name, but I'm guessing most of you haven't. Jim Thompson was a Green Beret from New Jersey and was just asked to go on this trip as they were scouting out. He survived the crash, although he experienced numerous serious injuries. The problem happened after that. Immediately upon crashing, he was taken and captured by the Viet Cong. For the next few years, he was tortured almost weekly by the Viet Cong. After five years of being imprisoned under them, they transferred him to, him to a North Vietnamese prison. He said that at one point during five-year span, he didn't see one other American. In desperation, he escaped. In fact, he escaped five times during his imprisonment and was recaptured five times, and every single time he received severe punishment. Finally, nine years almost to the day of his capture, he was released uh, he goes down, he's notorious, and goes down for being the longest uh, prisoner of war, American prisoner of war of any war. Can you imagine the joy that he experienced when he was delivered? Can you imagine what it would be like after nine years of, of torture and pain and hurt to be delivered? Booker T. Washington, some of you recognize that name. He was an educator. He was an author. <clears throat> he wrote an autobiography called Up From Slavery. <clears throat> he opened that autobiography by saying this, I was born a slave on the plantation in Franklin County, Virginia. In this book, he talks about when he was nine years old, and listen to what he says. He remembers this scene as a nine-year-old. He says, a man who seemed to be a stranger, probably a U.S. officer, I assume, made a little speech, and then he read a rather long document. 
Later I found out it was what's called the Emancipation Proclamation. After reading the document, we were told that we were all free and we could go when and where we pleased. My mother, who was standing by my side, leaned over and kissed each of her children while tears of joy ran down her cheeks. She explained to us what it all meant, that this was a day that she had been praying for for so long but feared would never come. And on that day, Booker T. Washington and his family were delivered. This morning I want to talk to you about being delivered. Now, I'm not talking about being delivered from an imprisonment in Vietnam. I'm not talking about being delivered from slavery in the past of our country. This deliverance is, is even better than all of those. And really what we're talking about today is the, is the essence of the gospel. It's the essence uh, of everything that we've talked about over the course of this year. As we continue our journey down the idea of, of growth, as we look at this book of Colossians, uh, what we're going to look at today is an essential truth that is essential for real growth. We've been talking about what it means to grow, but really, until you understand these two verses today, you cannot grow in your walk with God. We've said this in the last few weeks over our study of Colossians, but unlike many of the letters that Paul wrote to individuals and to churches, uh, he did not plant or interact with this church. In fact, there's no indication throughout the Bible that Paul even visited this church. Yet, verse, tells us, verse 7 tells us that they heard the gospel. They heard the gospel from a man by the name of Epaphras. If you see that in verse 7, they learned it from Epaphras. We've talked about that. But Paul mentions, even though he's never met them, in verses 4 and verses 9, he talks about how uh, he heard of their faith. This was a group of individuals, though there was problems, and we've talked about those, and we'll talk about those more. Though there was problems, he heard that this was a church that was filled with faithful people. They were filled with people who, who knew the Bible and believed the Bible and it impacted their lives. But you remember as, as he started this, verse 3, if you go back and look at verse 3, it says, uh, he says, we always thank God when we pray. He tells them, hey, first of all, he says, I'm thankful for that. Pastor Nate preached on that a few weeks ago. He says, I'm thankful for it, and here's what I'm thankful about. And then we get into later down, uh, on down in verse 9, and he talks about this prayer that he's praying. He said, I'm thankful, and, and I'm thankful, and I pray about it all the time. And now he says, here's the prayer. And in this verse, he talks about he's, his, his, his desire for them. And his desire is that they understand God's moral will that they know what God wants them to do. His prayer was that they walk in a way worthy of God. His prayer was that they bear fruit. In other words, that in their life, fruit is produced by the way that they live. His prayer was they would be strengthened each and every day, not through their own power, but through God's strength. And his prayer was that they would be uh, thankful for all that God has done. Now, in verses 9 through uh, 12, is where he talks about those things. But then we come to verse 13. And verse 13 and 14 is the, is, is the foundation of this, of this truth. 
It's the, it's the reality, the radical reality of all that God has done and why we should do those things that he mentions in verse 9 through 12. Look at verse 13 again. He has delivered us. Now, I want to pause there for a moment because um, in the way that the original language uh, has it and other translations translate it a little bit different, it might say, for he has delivered us. And the idea is, why should you live this way in verses 9 through 12? Why should you desire to grow? Why should you desire to change? And he's telling us now why. Okay, so if you say, well, why do I have to do all these things? He's saying, here's what he's saying. Here's the reason. Okay, so what does he say? Now these verses, although they do not mention the cross of Christ, on Friday we're going to have our Good Friday service because it's when we remember what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And the cross is the essential truth of what we believe. And although the cross is not mentioned by word in verses 13 and 14, the power of the cross that we just sang about is woven through these two verses in a huge way. So the crucial question as we come to this passage is, uh, what is it that he's saying is the reason for why we do all the things that he mentions in verses 9 through 12? Look what he says in verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And we just sang about that a few moments ago, the forgiveness of sins. And the, the question that we need to ask is, how, how can I really be forgiven? How can I really be forgiven? I think we take this question for granted as believers. Have you ever had someone hurt you? I mean really hurt you? And you know it's your responsibility to forgive them, but you don't want to. And the Bible tells us that our sin, and each and every one of us in here has sinned, our sin is, is against God. And yet here it tells us that we can have the forgiveness of sin. So how is that possible? We need to answer this question very carefully by seeing God as he is revealed in scripture not by how our society may conceive that he uh, is is and what he is to be see our culture today commonly views God as a kind loving soul and God is kind God is loving but there's so much more than that because viewing him as a kind and loving soul means this that he, he doesn't really like sin, but he would never judge it. I, I don't know about you, but I've had many times where I've interacted with people in our culture where they will say that type of statement. Ah, oh, yeah, God is such a loving God. I, I don't think he would really do judgment upon us for our sin. But that's not true. If that's how God really is, then we don't need to worry about our sins. But if God is holy, like He says He is in the Word, if God is holy, meaning that not only can He not sin, but He cannot, he cannot endure the presence of sin, then it's so much more than God is just a loving, kind soul, and it means that God will pour out His wrath on sin. And if that's the case, then our sin is real and it must be dealt with. 
But what this passage is saying is that there is forgiveness of sin. So again, we ask the question, how can I really be forgiven of sin? In order to understand this, uh, I want to look at just a couple points this morning. First of all, to experience the forgiveness of sin, we must see our awful condition. Two subpoints under that. First of all, since we are born in sin, we are under the power of darkness, not the kingdom of God. Look at verse 13 again. What does he say in that passage? He has delivered us what? From the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Clearly, Paul looks at this and he sees two possibilities. He sees either one, you are in the kingdom of God's beloved Son, or the other, you're under the authority of darkness. There is no middle ground. There is no possibility for, eh, I'm, I'm going to play it both ways. Now, the kingdom of God's beloved son, what does that mean? Well, well, he talks about the idea of beloved son. It's probably an allusion back to uh, Jesus' baptism. Remember when Jesus was baptized and, and God's voice came out of heaven and said, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Or, or, or maybe it's when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration and, and, and God appeared and said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. What these references point to and what this passage points to of this idea of His beloved Son is this loving relationship between the Father and the Son. And, and it points to the fact that, that God is saying that there really is only one who could come and save us from our sins. He doesn't mention any others. It's only Jesus. And the phraseology here emphasizes the contrast between being in Satan's evil domain and being under the authority of God who expresses His love through His Son. Now, I want to look at a few of the words here to understand them a little better. So we look in this passage in verse 13, and he talks about the kingdom of his beloved son. What's implied there is also the kingdom of darkness. It says the domain, but uh, it, the kingdom would be the similar idea. And so what does he mean by this kingdom? The kingdom of God's son, first of all, is, is, a, is the realm where Jesus Christ rules. Now, I believe that one day there will be a future kingdom. A kingdom where, uh, where Jesus Christ will return to earth and he'll reign on earth for a thousand years. That is not what's being talked about here with this kingdom of God's Son. What I believe is being talked about here is something different. The idea here is that those uh, that uh, are, are submitting their will to God and those that are submitting their lives to his lordship are in his kingdom the idea that you can believe in Jesus as your Savior, but wait until later to submit to Him as Lord is foreign in the Bible. See, so many times uh, I've, I've come in contact with people who they come to a point where they say, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ, but it doesn't impact them. And this kingdom of God's Son is saying this, I not only believe, but I'm going to place myself under His authority throughout my life. And here he, He's saying, you're either under the Lord's Authority, or you're under Satan's authority. Now Paul, in this passage, I think is echoing something that was said to him. Do you remember in Paul's life when 
Uh, he was, before he became uh, a believer, and he was going around, he was persecuting Christians, he was trying to do anything he could to stop those Christ followers. And, and the Bible tells us that one day he was on, on a road and he was going to the city of Damascus and while he was on this road, uh, a bright light shone from heaven, so much so that he fell to his knees and he's blinded. And he, and he began to have a conversation with the Lord in Acts. And I, I want to look at this because I want to see some similarities uh, as we get to the second part of this to what Paul is saying now to us in this passage. He says there, who, uh, this, is, this is Paul speaking, uh, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said to him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared uh, to you, I've appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me, in, seen me and to those in which I appear to you. Then he goes on and says this, delivering you uh, from your people and um, from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to, notice what he says next, this is where it gets similar, to open the eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. Note the parallels between what we see at the end of this passage and what we see here in Colossians. Uh, Both here uh, talk about the idea of turning from darkness to light. In both, there's a mention of forgiveness of sin. In both, there's a mention of inheritance that the Gentiles receive. But the point of both of these two passages is that there is only uh, two possibilities. Either a person's under the control of Satan or a person is under the control of Jesus Christ. I'll get to more of that in a minute. But I want to go into another word that I want to talk about here. Look at verse 13 again. He says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. What does he mean by that? Now, in Scripture, there are a few different meanings of this word darkness, or a few different um, connotations of this word darkness. Uh, there's, there's, first of all, there's one of spiritual ignorance. We see this in Ephesians uh, when, when Paul is talking to the church of Ephesus and he said, so they were darkened in their understanding. They had the inability to, to understand the word of God because they were darkened. Their eyes were darkened. Why were their eyes darkened? Because of ignorance, it tells us there in that passage. So there is the darkness that is spiritual ignorance, but there's also the darkness that refers to sin. You see in John here, it says, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. So here it's the idea of sin. Sin is darkness, but even worse than ignorance, even worse than sin is the horrible evil behind those two things, and that is Satan's domain. We see in Ephesians chapter 6 here, uh, Paul talks about it again. He says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, over the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Here, Paul is reminding the church in Ephesus of this. We are in a battle. And here today, I want to say, we're in a battle. Do you feel it? We're not in a battle against the other political party. We're not in a battle against sinners. We're in a battle against Satan. And too often we've understood this problem incorrectly. 
And here, he's telling us in this passage, he has delivered us, but what is he telling us? He's telling us there is only two possibilities there. Either you're for Satan or you're against him. Either you're for God or you're against him. So the picture of the world here, apart from Jesus Christ, is one of desperation, one of hopelessness. Spiritual uh, People who are unbelievers are spiritually ignorant and they're excluded from the life of God because of the hardness of their hearts. They love their sin and they don't want to come to the light because they don't want their evil deeds exposed. And the startling ground is that there is no middle ground. People are either in the kingdom of Jesus or they're in the kingdom of Satan. And here's the thing is there are the people in the kingdom of Satan who are, we're talking about some relatively good people. Nice people. You know what I'm talking about, your neighbors, some of your coworkers, some of your family, some of your friends. They're nice people. They're good to their spouses. They love their children. They're hardworking. They're good neighbors. They're good citizens of our country. They're not lawbreakers. Many of them are church attenders. But they're living under the domain of darkness. You say, why are you emphasizing this so heavily? The reason is, is unless we diagnose the problem correctly, we will apply inadequate solutions. Let me give you an example. Okay, let's say I hop in my car tomorrow and I, uh, in my garage and I start it up <clears throat> and it's making some really loud, weird noises that I've never heard my car make before. I'm a smart guy, I can figure this out, and so I get out of my car and I go and I pop the hood and I look in and while it's running I look and there's a part over here, honestly I don't know what it is, but it's rattling really loud and it's bumping against another part and it's making all sorts of noise and, and stuff spurting out of it and I go, hmm, that looks bad. So I turn off my car and I go and I get some tools and I say, that part's the problem. So I remove the parts and I throw it in the trash and I hop in my car and I say, I've solved the problem. Have I? No. See, the reason I'm emphasizing this so much is because there is so many people that are under the domain of darkness. We look at them and go, yeah, they're good people. And they're still dying and going to hell. And we're, oh yeah, but they're good people. And we're not diagnosing the problem, and so we cannot do that. If, we, if, if the relatively good people in the world do not see the true condition as God's Word describes it, then they will be content to go on living as they do, not realizing how eternally desperate their situation really is. You're thinking, yeah, well, sure, 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 I understand. We've got, we've got a few problems, but a little counseling, maybe a little psychological techniques, maybe some 
prescribed medication, and we'll be okay. And they don't see their need for the gospel. But their desperate condition, their desperate condition requires more than just some self-help techniques. All the self-help approaches in, in our world do not diagnose the problem enough. And it's like just taking out a bad part and saying, I'm good now. The biblical diagnosis is that we have to be under the authority of Jesus Christ. If not, we're under Satan's domain of darkness. So what do we do? Well, first we said we have to, we have to understand that we're under, uh, if we're born in sin, and everyone in here is, if we're born in sin, well, then we're under the power of darkness. But secondly, we have to leave this power of darkness. And in order to leave this power of darkness, God must deliver us and transfer us to his kingdom. But notice that, again, look at the passage there. Look what it says in verse 13. Who delivered us? He did. Who's he? Jesus Christ. It doesn't say I delivered myself. He did. goes on and it says he delivered us. He transferred us. See, the implication here is that we cannot rescue ourselves. The powerful enemy of darkness and our spiritual blindness combine to render us spiritually helpless to pull off our own rescue. In fact, until God opens our eyes, we don't even know we need rescued. I don't know how many of you have heard of, uh, of an interesting phenomenon called the uh, Stockholm Syndrome. Okay, if you're not familiar with it, the Stockholm Syndrome is, is a situation where uh, a person will be uh, kidnapped or imprisoned or something, and over a period of time of being in this situation, they will find themselves starting to grow an attachment and, and feeling uh, um, good thoughts towards their captor. I read of a story of a young girl, she was, she was kidnapped at the age of 10, and uh, she was living in this guy's basement, he was imprisoning her, he, she wasn't allowed to leave the house, he was, he was uh, beating her and raping her and treating her poorly for years. And, and that ended, and in his desperation, realizing he was about to be caught he killed himself, and upon hearing word that he killed himself, this girl, she uh, wept bitterly at the loss of this man. You think, wow. But you know what? It sounds so similar to those being held captive by the devil. They're lost, they're blinded, they're enslaved. They're free to only do what, what Satan wants them to do. They can't follow God because they're chained to their sins and they're bound by their sins. They're miserable, unable to live as God created them to live. And yet, you talk to them. You talk about the freedom that Jesus offers. No, they don't want that. They're good. And at times, they even defend their evil captor in spite of the way he's mistreating them. Now the difference in those two stories is that no matter uh, how much we risk to save the one in capture, 
uh, you know, we can't risk that to save ourselves or others. Therefore, we look at this and we see that, that He is the one that has to deliver. He is the one that has, has to rescue. And so we can simply say that salvation is from the Lord. It's not due to our self-efforts. It's not even a joint effort. It's God's doing. That should be humbling to us. Uh, Charles Spurgeon um, often would talk about this in his sermons, the the fact that it was not our own efforts, but it was uh, God's doing. And and one time he said this, listen carefully, he said, I must say that the doctrine which leaves salvation to the creature and tells him that it depends upon him is an exaltation of the flesh and is dishonoring to God. But that which puts in God's hands man fallen man and tells man that though he destroyed himself, yet his salvation must be of God. That doctrine humbles man in the very dust that he was born. Then he is just in the right place to receive the grace and mercy of God. See, we must understand, we must first understand that uh, that, that we are under the domain of darkness. But the second thing we must understand is that it's only God that can deliver us. And that leads to the second point. To experience the forgiveness of sin, we must rely on God's only solution. And what is that? God's only solution is redemption by His Son. Now we see that in that passage. He's talking about this beloved son, and then verse 14 he says, in whom we have redemption, in Jesus Christ we have redemption. Now what do you think of when you think of the word redemption? One author points out that in our world today, when we think of the word redemption, immediately we think of a religious term, right? When you hear redemption, you think, okay, I heard that in church sometime. That must be a church term. Uh, But remember, who was Paul writing to? Paul was writing to a, a, a small town, uh, in Asia Minor, uh, in the first century. And to us small town people in Asia Minor in the first century, this word redemption meant something completely different. It had nothing to do with religion. It was a non-religious term completely. It applied to them, it understood to them that it was, uh, it was the release of a prisoner of war by the paying of a ransom. Or it was the freeing of a slave through the paying of a price. John Stott, and the author, put it this way, in the Old Testament, property, animals, persons, and nations were all redeemed by the payment of a price. In all these cases of redemption, there was a decisive and costly intervention. Somebody paid the price necessary to free property from mortgage, animals from slaughter, and persons from slavery, and it even sometimes cost death. So here in this passage it says, in whom we have redemption. So that word redemption is not just some term that we should pass off. That word redemption means that something was done that cost the person who did the redeeming greatly. Now what was that? It was the the price was the blood of Jesus Christ. Now if you have a King James Bible in front of you, It says here, uh, in whom we have redemption through his blood. Uh, That's a a, a nice phrase there. Um, I believe that the writers of 
The King James got that from Ephesians. In Ephesians it says this, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespass according to the riches of his grace. Um, in the Colossians passage, in the original language, that, that phrase, through his blood, is not actually in there, but it is implied. Uh, it, is, it is implied, and I think it's a, appropriate to understand it to be there, that, that uh, this redemption happened because of the blood of Jesus Christ. It was because of Jesus Christ, which we're going to be uh, commemorating in just a few days, when Jesus Christ went to the cross and, and he died. It wasn't just because... Uh, the people killed him. It wasn't because he was a traitor. It wasn't because he was a blasphemer. None of that. It was because Jesus Christ humbled himself and died for you and for me. And by doing that, he paid the redemption, which was a costly thing. And then he says this, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What's interesting is in, in Paul's writings, he, he does not use this term forgiveness often. But he uses it here. And I think it's possible he uses it here because if we were to go back to that passage in Acts when, when Jesus confronted Paul on the road to Damascus, we will see that Jesus used that term with Paul. And so Paul is relating those words back, but, but think about the idea of what's being said there. It means a release, not just from the imprisonment, but it means a release from the debt, from the guilt, from the sin. These are huge words. You have been released from sin. We see, first of all, God's only solution is redemption by His Son, but secondly and finally, we receive God's solution of redemption by trusting in Jesus. As the Lord told Paul in Acts when he confronted him, as, as he was to go and proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, they would receive the forgiveness of sins, as he said to them, through faith in Jesus. Redemption and uh, forgiveness are both in Christ. We see that in this passage. They are in Christ. They're not of ourselves. They are in Christ. By trusting in Him, we receive those benefits which He obtained when He died and rose again. He gave us that opportunity. We cannot do anything to earn God's redemption. We cannot do anything to earn God's forgiveness. You know, sometimes here on this earth, someone uh, hurts us or we hurt someone and, and we try, don't we, sometimes to earn their forgiveness. I, I promise I'm going to change. I, I, I was wrong and I know I did that, but I, 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 I promise I, I, I won't do this again, but there is nothing we can do to earn the forgiveness of God. It was given to us by Jesus Christ and we need to trust in that forgiveness. One Puritan author put it this way, God doth justify the believing man, yet not for the worthiness of his belief, but for his worthiness in whom he believed. God does not forgive me because I'm worthy of it. Because you know what? I'm not. I'm not. But God forgives my sins because Jesus Christ was worthy. 
The author of Hebrews makes it clear the Old Testament sacrifices could never take away sins, no matter what they did. But, but it says in Hebrew, uh, in, 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 uh, excuse me, it says in Hebrews that, uh, that Christ offered his sacrifice one time, time and it obtained eternal redemption. As a result, assurance that God gives is to all who believe that their sins and their lawless deeds will he remember no more. Now you're here today, you are guilty of sin. Uh, I, I saw a cartoon one time, it was a psychologist talking to an individual who, you know, the typical scene, he was laying on the couch and uh, the, uh, he, was, he was saying um, to him, I, just, I feel guilty and I'm having all these problems with guilt and the psychologist looked at him and says, said this, Mr. Figby, I think I can explain your feelings of guilt. You're guilty. And that's so true. We're all guilty. The human race is guilty before God. Romans tells us that. Romans says this, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but then he goes on in the next verse and says, but being justified as a gift by God through grace, we receive the redemption from our sins. Now I want to remind you, this passage oozes with the gospel, but I want to remind you why Paul gave us these verses. Because if you look again at the passage in verse 13 and 14, he is telling us then this is the foundational reason why you do verses 9 through 12. So why is it that we walk in a way that is worthy? Because I owe everything to God. Because I have been redeemed. Because I have been forgiven. Because I have been transferred from this dark dominion over to this kingdom of a loving son. And so therefore, I'm going to do my best. And sometimes, you know what, we fail. And then we go to God and say, God, I want you to forgive me. And God does. If you are trusting in the death of Jesus alone for your salvation, then you have been delivered. Just like Jim Thompson was delivered from the Viet Cong, you have been delivered. So live like you've been delivered. Live like you've been redeemed. Live like you've been forgiven. But here's the thing, if you're trusting in anything else, you're still imprisoned to the domain of darkness. If somehow you think because you're here today, you're good before God, then it's possible that you're still living under that domain of darkness. If somehow you think that because uh, you were born into a Christian family, that you're on your way to heaven, it's possible that you still live under that domain of darkness. But you can change that today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Let's pray. God, we are um, humbled by these truths. Lord, I am often reminded of my own sin. Lord, even as we sang the song earlier, The Power of the Cross, and we, we talked about 
in, in our singing about how our sin, God, our sin is what placed Jesus Christ on the cross so that we can be forgiven. Lord, I pray for those in here this morning who are still holding to some other thing other than Jesus Christ for their salvation. Uh, Lord, I'm not. I, I don't know who they are. You do. I'm not naive to think that every single person in here has called upon your name. Lord, I know there are probably some in here who have not. They're still holding to the fact that they're a good person or that they read their Bible or or those type of truths, but Lord, I pray that you will work in their heart. But for those, Lord, that have placed their faith in you, I pray that you will help them to see then it is because of that, that should be the motivating, the, the, the guiding factor behind why we walk worthy, why we bear fruit, why we are strengthened in you, why we are thankful in all circumstances. Because we've been so blessed by your redemption, by your forgiveness. Lord, I pray that you help us convict us of those areas that we're still holding on to. We're not allowing ourselves to act like people who have been forgiven. Lord, we thank you for this word, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.